Today's passage comes from Daniel chapter 3. I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, We'll be looking at the whole of chapter 3, so the Bible reading itself is going to be pretty long, so just bear with me. Uh, But I couldn't split this passage up any smaller. Um, I do feel like the whole passage does need to be covered in one go. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, either in your physical Bibles or your mobile devices, Uh, Daniel chapter 3, and the word of God reads, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Then, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that certain time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their bodies was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. We got there. All right, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, whenever we read a historical narrative, narrative account uh, from the Old Testament, uh, Father, we pray to be able to understand that your word is a living word, just as it was a living word to the people of Judah back then, the, your people, the, the Jews back in the Old Testament, it is still a living word that continues to speak to us today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through Daniel 3, help us to find hope uh, when the fire comes, to understand how your people are to respond in times of difficulty, in times of suffering. Help me to preach with power and unction, and it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Uh, I've been in ministry for about 10 years, so from January next year, it'll mark 10 years uh, since I went into ministry. Uh, and I had a friend uh, that I started ministry together with, and we were just kind of talking about it yesterday. And we shared about what was the most difficult thing in the last 10 years that you've had to do. Uh, and for me, the answer is easy. Uh, there was one particular incident during those 10 years where I had to visit a young gentleman in hospital. Uh, it was, I think, in my second year of ministry. I hadn't been preaching for very long. I didn't know that much about the Bible. I was still early in my days in Bible college, which I finally finished. Uh, praise God for that. But I was asked uh, by a family friend to visit this young man in hospital. Uh, and this young man was no older than 18. 
He'd just finished his HSC. Uh, from what I was told, he was a very bright young man, studied very hard. You know, Asian parents like to push their kids to study. This was one of those kids that, even when he wasn't pushed, just studied on his own. Uh, he studied very hard, uh, got very good marks in his HSC, and uh, from what I was told, he got into medicine at a very prestigious university. And yet he, he was in hospital Uh, He'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was sitting in what's called the palliative care ward. And for anyone that knows what palliative care is, it's really a place, uh, to put it bluntly, where you go to die. Uh, Palliative care is where they kind of drug you up and try to minimise the pain as much as possible until you eventually die. Your heart stops beating and you stop breathing and you die. Now, this young man wasn't a believer, Uh, His family came from a family of Christians, and his mother asked uh, her family friend if she knew any young English-speaking pastors that would be able to come and share the gospel with him. And um, this friend reached out to me and asked if I could visit. I'd never done a visit like this before, and ever since then, I've never done a visit like this since then. Uh, But I remember I had to make that long drive. I agreed made the long drive out to, I think it was Rudy Hill Hospital. And before I went in, I sat in my car and I prayed, and I actually wondered uh, what I would say to this young man. If it was questions about the gospel, uh, you know, why did Jesus come to die for me? You know, these are questions that I, I can answer. Any Christian can answer these questions. Uh, but what I was kind of dreading was if you would ask those difficult questions, Why? Why is this happening to me? You know, I was the good son. I was the one that listened to my parents. I studied hard. I did everything my parents did. Why am I having this all taken away? And more importantly, what was the point of everything? What was the point of working so hard if this so-called loving God would take it all away? And I kind of braced myself, like he didn't end up asking these questions. But these were questions that I I wrestled with back then and I still wrestle with today. I finished Bible college, I still don't have a satisfying answer. And scripture doesn't really give us that big of a satisfying answer. But it does give us in Daniel 3 a means in which to approach difficult situations like this. Now, uh, if you've attended uh, church for any period of time, you would have come across the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, at some point. And to give you a bit of context, the book of Daniel, uh, it's set during a time when the people of Judah are in captivity. Uh, They're living in exile under the rule of the Babylonian Empire. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that God made a covenant or a deal with his people. He warned the people of Judah He said, worship me and me alone. I don't want you worshipping idols. I don't want you to make engraven images. I don't want you to, you know, start worshipping and mingling with the foreign idols of other countries. But if you read through the Old Testament, you read through the history of Israel and Judah, you'll find that both of them went through this downward spiral where that's all they did. King after king, it's just they fall down this downward spiral, never-ending spiral of corruption where they keep embracing other gods. And then there comes a point in Israel's history and Judah's history where God just says, enough. I've given you enough chances. 
You've broken your end of the covenant. And in the book of Daniel, you'll find that God's people, the people of Judah, have been given over, uh, given over to the Babylonian Empire. He's, they've been given over to the, uh, to the enemy. And the Babylonian Empire invades the people of Judah and takes captive the best-looking, the strongest, and the smartest people of the land, probably like North Sydney boys' standard. Takes them captive. And this is where we're introduced to Daniel and his three friends. Uh, their original names uh, you'll find if you read in the early chapters of Daniel uh, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But because they're living in Babylon, the Babylonian king wants to strip away their old identity and give them new names. And those names are Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are names that are coined after Babylonian gods. So essentially, they're stripped of their old identity and given new identities named after these Babylonian gods. And if you read the, uh, chapter 2, the preceding chapter to today's passage, you'll see that famous passage where Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, in chapter 2, Daniel explains to King Nebuchadnezzar, because he has this dream that he sees this statue made of different materials, and Daniel explains to King Nebuchadnezzar that these different materials represent different empires. The golden head of the statue that you saw, that's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. That's the Babylonian Empire. And every empire that comes after that is represented by these different materials, bronze, stone, and so, and so forth. And what you find throughout history, as we have the advantage of looking back, is that after the Babylonian Empire come the Persians. After the Persians come the, come the Greeks. After the Greeks come the Romans. And then what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that this entire statue is eventually smashed by this giant rock that represents the kingdom of God. It was a prophetic dream that would point to the coming of the eternal kingdom where the king is none other than Jesus himself. That's why if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you'll see this repeated proclamation, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and repent. For the kingdom of God is here, because King Jesus is here. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he he praises the God of the Jews at the end of chapter two, uh, at the end of chapter three rather, because Daniel interprets the dream successfully, and he promotes Daniel uh, and his friends, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel himself. They get promoted to very powerful positions within the Babylonian Empire, and at the end of chapter three. Uh, and sorry, at the end of chapter two, rather, uh, Nebuchadnezzar praises God. However, we find as we read through the book of Daniel that even though he praises God, he totally misses the point of that prophetic dream. Because what we find in today's passage in Daniel chapter three is that Nebuchadnezzar makes this giant statue made entirely of gold. Now, we have to make it clear that the Bible doesn't actually tell us what this statue was. Uh, if you've watched sort of Bible movies and you know Bible TV shows, um, they often represent this statue as a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Uh, but if you read the passage closely, you'll find that it doesn't actually say that. Uh, it doesn't tell us explicit, explicitly what the statue was. Uh, it might have represented King Nebuchadnezzar, or it could have represented the Babylonian gods. Uh, most likely, it would have been the latter, the Babylonian gods, because unlike 
Egypt. Uh, Egyptian pharaohs considered themselves to be gods. Babylonian kings generally didn't appoint themselves with any kind of divine status. Now, the other thing that we know about this statue is that verse 1 says that it was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And if you can convert that to the metric system, uh, it comes to about 20 centimetres high and 2.7 metres long. Uh, whatever this statue was, it was very tall and very skinny. If it was a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, it would have been a very weird-looking statue, like really, really tall. Now, according to verse 2, uh, the king then orders all the leaders of the Babylonian kingdom to congregate. And from verses 4 to 7, he has his herald issue a decree. Verses 4 to 7 read, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, if you're not sure what a trigon is, it's like a triangular-shaped harp, a trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So essentially, this decree commanded that the entire empire had to bow down and worship this golden image as an act of loyalty to the Babylonian kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar. Failure to bow down would have been considered an act of treason and would result in the death sentence by being thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, at the end of chapter 2, remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, Belteshazzar, uh, these four people have been promoted by King Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel was able to interpret the king's dream. And by successfully interpreting the king's dream, Daniel managed to accomplish what the wise men in Babylon failed to do, what the Chaldeans failed to do. And as a result, these wise men, these Chaldeans, uh, they're referred to, they were jealous of the special treatment that Daniel received and that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego received. Uh, they were jealous of the positions of status that were bestowed upon them. And so what they do is they hear the king's decree, this order to bow down and worship this statue, and they use this decree as a means of bringing about the downfall of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the Babylonian gods and many cultures, oh, sorry, the Babylonian people and many cultures at that time, they were what we call polytheists, meaning they worshipped many gods. Uh, the Egyptians were polytheists. Uh, and the Babylonians were polytheists. They had a multitude of gods. Even the Romans, you've got this whole pantheology of gods that they worshipped. Um, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians knew this, but they also knew that the Jews, the people of Judah, were what we call monotheists. They only worshipped one god. They only ever bowed down and worshipped one god, their one true god. And so using this, Against them, they seek out King Nebuchadnezzar and they bring to his attention, knowing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not have bowed down. He brings, oh, they bring to the king's attention that these people of Judah did not bow down and worship the golden image. They did not obey the king's decree and ultimately they had committed treason 
against Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, now being aware of this, has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego brought before him. He has them seized and brought before him, and he says to them in verses 14 and 17, he says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, that you do not worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. And if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He kind of gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego another chance. He reiterates his command. And he says, you know what? If you bow down and worship, maybe he made a mistake. Maybe he didn't hear me properly. If you bow down and worship in front of me now, we're all good. However, should you fail to obey, I will kill you. No questions about it. And not only that, he throws out a rhetorical question to them in verse 15. At the end of verse 15, he says, who is the God who's going to deliver you out of my hands? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is giving them a promise. You don't bow down now, I will kill you. And you know what? There is no God. I don't care what God you worship, there's no God that's going to save you. No God. My authority and power surpasses any God that you have to offer. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hear this. They hear this threat. And they're quite defiant in their response. If you look at verses 16 to 18, they answer the king by saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they've got guts, you've got to give it to them. Uh, they refuse to obey King Nebuchadnezzar. But the way they respond to his threat, it actually has two facets. Firstly, they explain to King Nebuchadnezzar that their conviction, despite the threats of the king, despite this death threat, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, you know what? Despite everything you said, our God is in fact capable of delivering us. You know, you say that he can't save us, he can actually save us from the burning fiery furnace if he wants to. Make no mistake about that. However, the second facet, on the other hand, if it's God's will for us to die, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell Nebuchadnezzar, we'll still refuse to worship you or your gods. In other words, even if God doesn't come through for us, even if it's God's will for us to die this horrific, gruesome death in the fire, we refuse to worship any other God except our one true God. 
And what they reveal by this answer is that their defined obedience to the one true God is not based on what God can do for them. It's not based on their circumstances. They don't worship God because he can save them, but they worship God because of who he is. There is a famous pastor, uh, Paul Washer, who once said, even if God were to send everyone to hell and not save a single soul, he is still worthy to be worshipped. Why? Because he's God. I met your senior pastor uh, when I arrived earlier today. It was my first time speaking with him. And maybe it's like the Korean in me. My immediate reaction was to bow. Why did I bow? Not because he's nice to me. I, I just met him today. I bowed because of who he is, authoritatively compared to me. He is a senior pastor. And in the same way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship any other god, not because of what God could do for them, but because of who God is. And so they weren't going to be shaken by any kind of threat from a human power. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their allegiance was to God and God alone. Now, Nebuchadnezzar viewed their defiance as an act of treason, and he commands for the furnace to be heated up seven times. If you know Jewish literature, you'll know that seven is the number of completion. So seven horns means ultimate power. Seven eyes means ultimate wisdom. Anything seven times is complete. That's why 666 is the number of incompletion. Incompletion three times. So seven times, it's really hot. And King Nebuchadnezzar orders Daniel's friends to be bound and thrown into the furnace. And they're bound and thrown by the mightiest soldiers in Babylon. And the passage shows us the fire was so hot that as these friends were thrown in, the fire actually consumed these soldiers and killed them. But then something amazing happens in verses 24 and 25. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was astonished after they'd been thrown in. And he rose up in haste. He declared to his advisors or his counselors, didn't we cast three men into the fire? They answered and said, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth individual is like the son of the gods. And so not only were Daniel's three friends still alive, but Nebuchadnezzar saw that there was a fourth individual with them in the fire. And this guy, this fourth person, whoever he was, he wasn't like a normal person. He had clearly divine qualities. And, you know, there's a lot of debate as to who this fourth individual was. Um, some theologians think that it was an angel of the Lord. Uh, I personally believe it was a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity. However... Whoever you consider this fourth individual to be, uh, what's undisputable is that this fourth individual represented something. It represented the presence of God amongst his people. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are called out of the fire by the king. He calls them out, and they kind of walk out. And I always wondered how they would have reacted coming out of the fire. I think for me, the first thing I would have checked is if my eyebrows and my hair were still intact. 
Uh, my hair's been falling out a lot these days, so I kind of want to hang on to every hair I have. But these guys come out of the fire. And verse 27 says, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nothing had happened to them. The only thing that had changed was that the ropes that had been, uh, that, that, that had been used to tie them had been burnt off. Like these guys, in reality, in theory, should have been dead. If you look at the way they were thrown in as well, they were thrown in with jackets and cloaks. And the reason Nebuchadnezzar did this was so that these things would catch on fire and burn them even more quickly. But nothing had happened to them. They were unhurt. And the only thing that had changed was that the ropes that had tied them were no longer there. And what's interesting is that at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, seeing this, gives a response in verse 28. And it's a response where he answers his own rhetorical question that he gave in verse 15. Remember in verse 15 at the end, he asked that rhetorical question, who's the God that's going to deliver you out of my hands? It was that rhetorical question saying that no one can save you. Which God has the power to save you out of my hands? But having witnessed this supernatural miracle, Nebuchadnezzar is now able to answer his own rhetorical question in verse 28. Because he says in verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servant who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And the passage then concludes with a new decree from King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, ordering for the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from this point on to be honoured by everyone. Uh, and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego get a second promotion, which is pretty cool for them. Um, and so having gone through the narrative of this passage, the story of this passage, we're left with that question that we should ask whenever we study any passage. And that's the question, so what? What does this mean for us? What can we learn and take away from a passage like this? And I want to share three observations from today's text uh, that I hope will be helpful for you all and for myself. Um, the first observation is that suffering, according to, today, to, to today's passage, uh, suffering serves as an opportunity for God's people to reveal God to the unbelieving world. Suffering is an opportunity for God's people to reveal God to an unbelieving world. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware, or I hope you're all aware, um, suffering is not something that's meant to be foreign to the Christian life. When you become a Christian, it's not that suffering di disappears. But for the true Christian, the one that loves Christ and follows him, we know that suffering is actually an integral part of what it means to follow Jesus. In seeking to be like Christ and follow after him, we know that it means to participate in suffering just as he did. When we say we want to be like Jesus, one of the facets of that is to share in the suffering that he did. However, what is the purpose of suffering? 
The Bible t- tells us a few things. Uh, one of the things that it tells us is that God uses suffering as a means to refine and strengthen our faith, which he absolutely does. Uh, many people, they'll go through a storm in life, and as they cling to the cross and cling to Christ, they'll come out of their, uh, the other end, realizing that their, their, their ability to depend and lean upon the cross has been strengthened. But did you know that suffering and persecution is one of the most powerful ways that we can show people the God that we worship? In today's passage, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are confronted with this death threat, where King Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't worship, I will kill you. How do they respond? Verses 16 to 18, they say to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. They respond to the threat of death, the threat of persecution, by pointing to God. They tell the king, whether we live, whether we die, doesn't matter. Even if we die a horrendous death, God is still worthy to be obeyed and worshipped, not because of what he can do for us, but simply because of who he is. He is God. He is the creator of heaven and earth. You might have this vast empire. You might think you have power and authority. But guess what? You only have it because God's granted it. This is how powerful he is. And it might sound strange, but for the Christian, suffering has a silver lining. For the follower of Jesus, suffering has a silver lining because suffering not only serves to refine our faith, but it gives God's people an opportunity to point to God and show the unbelieving world how awesome our God is. I don't know if any of you plan on going to Bible college or going into ministry. Um, Even if you don't, uh, one of the things I encourage you to do is at uh, Bible college, just take up a church history subject. And one of the remarkable things that you'll find as you study church history is that whenever God's kingdom, whenever the church had suffering and pain and persecution and death thrown at it, whenever Satan did his worst to bring down the kingdom of God, those are the times when God's kingdom grew the most rapidly. Makes no sense. But every time pain and persecution confronted the church, for some reason, the kingdom of God kept growing. So point number one, suffering is an opportunity for God's people to reveal God to an unbelieving world. Point number two, God walks with his people in the fire. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar observed something remarkable, something supernatural happened. Nebuchadnezzar, after seeing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, he says, but I see four men unbound in the fire, 
They're not hurt. And this fourth person, whoever he, whoever he is, he looks like the son of the gods. Now, I mentioned earlier that we can't really know who this fourth person was definitively. I think it was Jesus. I'd put my money on that it was Jesus. Um, but irrespective of who you think it is, remember that this fourth individual represented the presence of God amongst his people. And what's amazing about the scriptures and even our own lives is that history shows God constantly desires to be with his people despite what they've done. Remember in today's passage, God's people, the people of Judah are in exile. They're not victims under Babylon's empire. They've kind of created this situation on their own. They disobeyed God repeatedly. They're not innocent victims. This is the result of their sin. They worshipped false gods and God gave them over to Babylon. They were there because they were failures. They broke their end of the covenant, of the contract with God, because they disobeyed God. And again and again, chance after chance, they failed God and followed after false gods despite all the warnings, despite all the prophets that God sent. Going into exile, being under Babylon's rule was the result. It was the punishment for their sins. They weren't victims. And yet despite all of this, we see throughout Israel's history and Judah's history that God never lets go of his people. By grace, throughout history, we find that God constantly demonstrates a desire to be with his people. In Genesis, after the creation account, Adam and Eve, they disobey the one command that God gives them. God should have killed them on the spot. They're cast out of the Garden of Eden, but God never lets go of Adam and Eve. Cain kills his brother Abel. God does not let go of him, but still chooses to commune with him. Israel, when they, they, they're under slavery in Egypt and they come out, God creates and institutes this process of establishing a tabernacle. Why? So that he can be with his people. In the wilderness, God leads Israel as a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke because he wants to be with his people. We see in today's passage, even as Israel go into exile for committing idolatry again and again and again, God is still with his people as this fourth individual. And even in the New Testament, God still chooses to be with his people. The word Christ with us, Emmanuel, it means Christ with us. We've got, you know, we've got Christmas coming up soon. And we celebrate the birth of Emmanuel. What is Emmanuel? It is the fulfillment of God's desire, despite our sin, to continue to be with his people. Emmanuel, it's that Hebrew word. It literally means God with us, despite our sin. And through the gospel, we have the spirit of God in us, with us, and around us. Now, you've probably heard Daniel 3 many times if you've gone to church and you grew up in you know, the, the church, Korean church education curriculum. You would have heard this story of Daniel uh, 3 at some point in your life. Uh, but I want to make one thing clear. 
Daniel 3, the message of Daniel 3 isn't that God saves us from the fire. Because we see that God didn't save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. In fact, these three friends were willing to entertain the possibility that God wouldn't save them and God would allow them to die. Daniel 3 is not, the message of Daniel 3 isn't that God saves us from the fire, but rather it's that God walks with us even in the fire. That despite our failures, when the fires and the storms of life come, God has not abandoned us. Even if it feels like we've been abandoned, we have this assurance and this promise from God, this ongoing desire from Genesis 1, even up until the end of time, that God will constantly be with us no matter what. God walks with his people in the fire. We might not know why things are happening. We might not have answers to why God has allowed this to happen. But the one guarantee, the one promise that we can cash and take to the bank is that God walks with his people in the fire. And that's, that was the one thing that I could share to this young man, this 18-year-old kid that was dying in hospital that had one week left to, di- to live. I can't explain why you've got cancer. I can't explain why God has given you only one week left to live But the one promise I can give you is that if you repent and you place your hope in Christ, you'll see that God has not abandoned you. You'll see that God still continues to love you despite your circumstances. He is with you despite your circumstances. And when you breathe your final breath, you will be with him for all eternity. God desires to be with his people, because God walks with his people, even in the fire. Final point, trusting in God means committing your life to him. Nebuchadnezzar is not a Christian. He's not a believer in God, he's not a Jew, but he makes an astounding observation in verse 28. He says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar praises Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for their willingness to die a gruesome death and remain faithful to their god. But he also makes an excellent observation about what true saving faith is meant to look like. Because he says that not only did Daniel's friends trust in God, but he also says that they were willing to yield up their bodies, give up their bodies to God. They not only had faith, but their faith was coupled with action. Now in James chapter 2, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the head of the Jerusalem church, in verses 14 and 17, makes a similar statement about true saving faith. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, I have faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
Now, James is not saying that we're saved by faith and works combined. We know that the gospel of Christ teaches that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But what James is saying is that faith is never alone. James knew, and Nebuchadnezzar observed, that true saving faith gives birth to action. Action and good works is a byproduct of true saving faith. And Nebuchadnezzar was able to observe that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It wasn't an intellectual faith. It wasn't just a mental you know, declaration that I will worship God, but it translated into action in their life. I'm not only willing to verbally commit my life to Christ, but in action, I'm willing to yield up my body to God. Nebuchadnezzar saw it in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the unbelieving world today should be able to see it in our lives. That our faith in Christ is not just a verbal one, but it is one that translates into action and reality in our life. We are willing to give up our lives to Christ, not just on paper, but in action. Trusting in God means not just believing with our minds, but committing, really committing our lives to him. We're never ever to be tame about our faith or about the Christ that we worship. Christians should be wild and passionate about the Jesus that they worship. And this should translate in a desire and a reality where we genuinely lift up and commit our bodies to God. And so those are the three points that I want to conclude with. Number one, suffering is an opportunity for God's people to reveal God to an unbelieving world. Point number two, no matter how many times you've failed and you've hit rock bottom, God is with us. He is walking with us even in the fire. And point number three, Trusting in God means committing your life to him. That's it. And so I just want to enter into a time of prayer with you guys. Uh, I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know many of you. I don't know if you're going through a difficult season in life. I don't know if you're going through a spiritual crisis at the moment. But what I do know is that our God is a God that desires to hear from you. Our God is a God that desires to walk with you through this difficult season. If it's suffering, he will walk with you in suffering. If it's through a spiritual crisis where you're not sure where you're at spiritually, God desires to hear from you. Throughout history from Genesis 1, God has never abandoned his people. No matter how many times we've abandoned him, So if this is you at this point, I encourage you, I beg you, spend this time in laying all this down before Christ. You don't have to sugarcoat where you're at spiritually. Lay your heart bare and honest before God and ask Him to reveal His presence to you. Ask Him to open your spiritual eyes so that you can see that He is walking with you in the fire. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. That from the opening chapters of Genesis, from the point that our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed you, tried to sit on the throne of their own lives, that despite this repeated pattern throughout history where we try to be king over our own lives, that you refuse to give up on us that you continue to desire to be with your people. We thank you for Christ, that despite our sin, you make it possible for us, despite our sin, to be covered by the blood of your Son, to be able to approach the throne of grace with confidence, not having to tiptoe our way to you, hoping that you'll accept us, but to be able to approach you with a guarantee that you have already accepted us if our faith is in Christ. We thank you for grace. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you for Christ. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.